0: I'm Scott Dresser, your host for Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Welcome to another episode. Thank you for tuning in. My guest today is Miles White, and uh, without muddying the waters or anything, or getting anything wrong, just take it straight over to uh, Miles. Miles, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing real good, man, and I want to say I appreciate, <clears throat> really, truly appreciate you taking the time. Um, I know you're up early. Well, we normally get up early over there anyway, but... Uh, I appreciate you getting up early and working with me on this. Um, you got an important busy job over there and the time difference for anybody that's listening right now, uh, you're on the other side of the world, basically. So um, it's kind of a small feat of magic to make all this work. So Miles, I really appreciate it, man. No problem. No problem, Scott. So uh, why don't we start here with uh, letting these folks know, I, um, you know, just provide to those people that are listening, uh, a brief bio background on on whatever it was you did uh, that got you to the point just before you got into contracting.
1: OK, well, I was I uh, was in the military, uh, U.S. Army Special Forces. I was tab qualified in seventh special forces group. I had recently done uh, uh, counterterrorism in South and Central America. That was my primary area of operations, obviously. Uh, fluent in Spanish, uh, a couple other languages. And I was a little bit disillusioned with what we were able to do, and what we could do. And I was talking to a gentleman and he told me that they had uh, protection jobs in Kuwait at the time. And so what I did is I decided to transition out of the military into the contracting world. Uh, for one, you know, you do make more money, obviously, but you also got to spend a lot more money. But I did transition out of special forces into contracting that happened in uh, 1998 and I've been a contractor ever since.
0: Wow. Okay. So you're um while you don't go back to the beginnings, you certainly uh were an early starter in this program.
1: Well, yes. It, it, a lot of people didn't know that uh, contracting even pretty much existed. There was a few uh, certain uh, sectors of like say military police and a few other people that were doing Small contracts here and there, but uh, the Camp Doha contract in Kuwait was one of the big uh, starters of all that. And then when they opened up the worldwide police uh, security and protection contract, which turned out to be the WIPs uh, diplomatic security, when that hmm. was announced, I had applied for that. And then I started my uh, full time contracting career from there doing diplomatic security.
0: Interesting. So WIPs, as we knew it, which became WPS and then the WPS two and I think they're going on three here soon. Um, so WHIPS back then, because the common translation, as I knew it and still knew it up until just now, was worldwide protective personal security services, but it was actually something that somehow got transmuted because that's not what it really meant. It meant what you just said it was. Is that correct?
1: Correct. They, they had
0: a uh,
1: contingent of that that did uh uh, policing and some of the uh, correctional type work uh, under the same auspices of the State Department at the time, and it was under log cap back then. It hadn't turned to WHIPS until I think sometime in 2004, and uh, it was WPPS, and then it went to like you said WPS, uh, and then it went to WPS1, and then it went to WPS2, and now you say it's going to go to three, which I wouldn't doubt, and that's modifications that they add additional. Uh, training and uh, special the specialty type techniques that they have to include into the evolving world of, you know, diplomatic security.
0: So they add training to it. That's all it really is. OK, now, yep. um, dip- now, uh, for those of us who know, uh, there's probably a lot more that don't know. There is a difference. I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but there is a difference between truly diplomatic security uh, on the diplomat side versus, say, the WPPS kind of stuff, where it was, uh, say, with military and other non-military uh, people. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, it, it, it's it's there's uh, what do we call PSD type work that's non. It, most people can uh, associate WPS or WPPS with the State Department. Uh, it, it, so correct. For, so for clarification purposes, for people that are listening. WPS, WPPS is all State Department uh, stuff. Is that correct? Correct. That's that's, when you work directly
1: uh, with a company that is uh, hired by the State Department to provide the services of actual uh, protecting diplomats in a lot of the denied areas of the world. And these people all have to have a background and they go through a special training course, obviously, as you well know. The course has got up to as much as 40 something days, almost as long as our ranger course. And it's uh, pretty pretty extensive. Uh, you get some good training, and yeah, ha- and usually they pick people from good backgrounds. Obviously, uh, once right. it once it grew large, they, the background kind of pickings kind of got a little slim, and they, they venture out into other areas. But for the most part, it's it's pretty much all uh, diplomatic stuff, and all you work for ambassadors, uh, people that work out of the consulates. Uh, USAID missions where you help them, you know, you're, you're helping them protect them while they're building wells and uh, while they're visiting dignitaries. Uh, we used to go to Yasser Arafat's compound all the time in Ramallah. I mean, there's many places and many people that, that, that you see in the news that we've actually got the chance to work with and all the sites we've, I've seen all the sites in Jerusalem, all the sites in Israel. This is a fantastic experience in that respect. And you do learn a lot about diplomacy and other nationalities and other peoples, which is very important.
0: Oh, you sure do. And, and, and another thing, I'm glad you brought it up, uh, is that probably the people that aren't aware or don't know don't probably think of the diplomatic security that we're talking about, the protective side of security, whether it's with the Defense Department or the State Department, but particularly the State Department, what we're talking about now, is that it's not just in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's, it's pretty much around the world.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I worked in uh, Erbil, for example, which it was in Iraq. Of course, I worked in uh, Israel. I started the Israel contract. I was one of the first 10 guys on the ground in uh, 17 uh, June, uh, 17 July 2002. And uh, we only had 10 folks on the ground at the time, augmenting the uh, DSS agents that were on the ground. Uh, But it's pretty much, yeah. That's it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and, and back then in the in the earlier days in the 90s and the very early part of this century, um, before we went before we went storming in there in Gulf War Two, I mean things were a little different both in in terms of not only the requirements uh, but skill sets and and who they picked versus I mean they still want those kind of people, but I mean things have changed mission. Has the mission changed? So if you can expound on any of that, how it's evolved or changed since you right. first began to where it is now. Well, I'm glad you brought that up
1: because that way it'll kind of dissuade some of the uh, poor impressions and some of the bad ideas other people have about contracting. Uh, diplomatic security, as we talked about, we didn't have all this giant gear on and big, giant weapons and everything. We actually left our rifles and stuff inside the vehicles in a case Everything was concealed, kind of like you're doing, you know, concealed carry like a detective almost. Even when you wore body armor, it was small and hidden. And the people that they picked in the beginning, like you're saying, were all from either uh, Delta Force at the time. We had some very experienced long-term Navy SEALs, not some guy that got in and did one or two years. But not that they, not that they can't do it or, or are capable, but usually you had someone that had a longer lifestyle, a longer skill set that, that wanted to be in this type of work. Cause it's not easy to deal with people that some people might, they're trying to hate and kill you, and you're sitting there trying to be nice and diplomatic about it. So they all dealt, took Delta Force, uh, Special Forces, Green Berets. We had one Force Recon guy in my team. Uh, you'd be surprised at the, the level and background. Some guys had 20, 30 years in the military before they got in contracting. Mm-hmm. I had 16 years in the military as a paratrooper and as a Green Beret. And that's where they picked from. That was all in the original. We only had 10 guys on the ground. And you had to have a background in protection to even get hired for the job in the first place before you went to the so-called training course, which is really not a training course. It was a certification course back then. In other words, just proving that you could do the things that you said you can do, shoot well, drive well, you know, all the evasive driving, all the techniques you had to know, to cover an evacuation, all the skills you need to do it, be a real protector. And that's what we went through. And we did that stuff as a lifestyle as part of our job. A lot of times in Special forces in Delta, they did protection in the military, so it was easy to transition into this lifestyle as a uh, so-called civilian contractor. But yet, you're, you had we had a diplomatic passports back then. Carried a black passport. We didn't carry any any diplomatic cards, but we had the passports, uh, badges. I mean, we did things that were a little different than they are nowadays, like you're saying. But once they got larger and larger and larger and started growing in all these countries, they had to take from other other fields in the military. Some people were police only. Some people were just infantry. And some of those have been some of the best guys. Some of those have been just regular Marines. You'd be surprised to the people out there. It's, It's not something that says, well, you can't do this unless you're special forces. You can't do this unless you're Delta Force. That's not necessarily true. That just made it easier in the beginning when they didn't have time to prove this and show this and train you. You had to be already trained. That's got why it. the course went that's why the course went from about a 10 day 10 day practice train up before you deployed which is what it originally was which is a train up where the team mm-hmm. got together and did what they what they so they could be on the same sheet of music and operate pro- professionally in country they would do that before they left the uh, US well mm-hmm. now it's a 44 45 day and you have to have bios and you know your backgrounds and all these things you got to do so it, it, it definitely morphed into taking anybody from infantry, marines, police officers, just about anybody, but they had to have the desire to want to do it, to stay in. And of course you get bad apples sometimes or some guys that get in and realize they, they can't do it or can't stay deployed, they don't like it, and then they they disappear. So I didn't disappear and I'm still here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right yeah. well yeah and that's interesting i mean it, it really is and let's just be honest it really is kind of a rare breed of person man or woman uh that can do that for an extended period of time i mean it, it takes it takes like you said it takes it it takes a little bit more than the average person to to cut the muster but then to stay there for a protracted period of time over years it takes a whole different kind of breed does it not yes it does it it, it I'm not going to say it doesn't wear on you sometimes.
1: Uh, sometimes you're isolated. Uh, you're over here. Uh, depends on the rotations. You've heard of different rotations or different types of jobs, the rotations when you go on leave or leave the country. That might be uh, they've gone from, you know, guys staying six months at a time or staying a year at a time down to 30 days a year, which is pretty much what the DOD follows, Department of Defense follows. And then you've got DOS, which used to be 105, 35, and you were on a set rotation no matter what you knew when you were going home. So it's a little bit easier in your mind uh, to, to, to follow that. And then they went down to a 90-30 on a lot of the jobs because they realized to keep some of these people, they, they they can't stay deployed for extended periods of time. You Think about it. They have families. You know, my family's kind of been broke up a little bit because of it in the initial parts. And then you have to have, find someone that can deal with you being gone all the time. And it, right. it does make it quite difficult. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, and, and, that, and that's a whole other aspect of the contracting uh, part, which uh, I won't delve into at this moment unless you really want to. But there, there are, yeah, there is an awful lot of aspects to contracting that, that most people don't see, hear, or read about, and, and you can't truly appreciate it until it's happened to you. Well, yeah, they, they, people back home need to realize that it's
1: not like being in the military. The military you know I, I was in the military too so I can, I can talk and speak about it and I was deployed in the military long term in Special Forces for months at a time even more isolated than the military is nowadays most of the times nowadays the military deploys to a big base like like Kandahar or Bagram you know you got Baghdad you got these different places they would deploy and they have a lot of people around them a lot of friends a lot of a larger unit a lot of support elements and things like that and they they might stay as much as a year you know but they but they were had a good support system and their family was taken care of contractors don't quite have that not not saying that we're we're treated like stepchildren most of the time but sometimes we were you have uh you have to take care of all your own stuff you pay for all your own insurance you pay for sometimes you need to pay for some of your flights you used to in the old days when you went home a lot Uh, Mm -hmm. you you don't have quite the same support system you're isolated a lot more Uh, it makes it Difficult, like you said, and that's pretty much all we need to say about that for now.
0: Right, right. Well, it's interesting because uh, when you talk about buying your own things, and, and this has come up with, in conversation with other guys that I've had, and you've probably had the same or similar conversations, it's like uh, that's something that a lot of people don't realize in private security contracting, um, especially outside the U.S., uh, we it's not uncommon for us to pay for an awful lot of our own personal what well, we call personal stuff because we keep it, we take it home with us, we bring it to work with us, but we pay for it. Yeah. Whether it's uh, equipment, gear, clothing, absolutely, uh, accessories, yeah. you name it, we pay for it. Absolutely.
1: Um, when I was running right front seat, you know, as a shift leader, on uh, doing PSD and or diplomatic security, either one, uh, in, in high-threat areas like Iraq, I would run with uh, image-stabilizing binoculars. Well, they weren't supplied. I had to buy them. They cost me $850 back in, the, back in 2004, or 10 power. I push a button, and it stabilizes the image. It was Navy technology. And mm-hmm. I was able to see down the road, you know, up to 1,000 meters with good, good clarity to protect oh. my team. And that's what I would I'd pay for that. Plus, I'm wearing, I was carrying a, uh, a Fabrique Nationale weapon that I had to buy myself. I, I paid $1,500 for the weapon at the time, which, mm-hmm. which, which, which was legal. Everything was legal on the up and up. Uh, the gear that I was wearing, the, the body armor I was wearing, I paid for. I paid almost $1,200 for the body armor. Uh, the pistol belt uh, made by Blade Tech in its early days. I had it custom designed, the drop and offset. I paid a lot of money for all that, all the mag pouches, specialized magazines for my weapons. Yeah, you end up you end up spending tons and tons of money uh, yeah. just to do your job because your life depends on it. It's not like you're just going and not, not that there's nothing wrong with making ice cream cones, but you don't need a lot of gear and you're not, your life's not usually threatened, you know, when you're making ice cream cones. So when your <laughs> life is threatened, you
0: have to put the money out to get good quality stuff. Simple right. as that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. That, yeah. And, and anybody who's done this for any length of time, realizes that and most guys, if not all of them, in fact, do that. Um, it's, it's, inter- so you mentioned PSD and diplomatic security. So for anybody that's listening, can you articulate or define to them, uh, what distinguishes the difference if there is a difference between PSD and diplomatic security?
1: Yes. Uh, some people consider it a gray area, but it's all about your attitude at the time, your projection a projection of of your possible force that you might have capability of, of exercising if needed. It's how you show your weapons, how you set up your motorcades. Uh, you try to, uh, in diplomatic security, you try to be lower profile usually. Uh, sometimes you come in, you know, of course, they might come in with, you know, blue lights and sirens in some places for certain jobs, certain locations. But for the most part, you're quiet, you're reserved, you try to be less aggressive, and uh, you're protecting, usually, diplomats, specifically. <clears throat> Excuse me. So right. PSD, now, PSD was the time when you were going into areas where probably shouldn't have gone anyway and where <laughs> most of the diplomats wouldn't have went in the first place. So the mission would have been would have been kanked if it was a DOS-type mission. But uh, you'll go in. You know, I was wearing a custom tactical tailor rig. You know, I was carrying 14 5.56 magazines. Because and uh, yeah, yeah, two grenades, uh, two radio, uh, one, two radios. Depends on who I was talking to when I was talking to uh, talking in Arabic on one radio, speaking in English on another radio, a mm. pistol, my magazines, a knife. I mean, you'd be surprised at the at the stuff that you would carry because you don't have the support, you don't right. have military. You know, I don't have a 10s going to swoop in and save me. You know, I didn't always have, uh, you know, the presidential air that DOS had for diplomatic security helicopters to come in and save me. I didn't have a big counter assault team. Uh, Even when you did, you had to be able to hold up in a building or in an area or behind your vehicles or fight on the street for extended periods of time. It didn't always happen, but sometimes it did. So, yeah, you carry, you, you, you project yourself in PSD a lot more outwardly. We even had in the old days when we had vehicles that weren't armored at all, we had, We call them porcupine vehicles. All the weapons would be stuck out the window. (laughs) I'm talking. I'm I'm talking. Seriously, I'm talking. You got to be ready right now. A guy jump out in the street with an AK. You you had to be the one that fired first. Period. Because it's your life. Right. You know. You know what happened. You know what happened to the guys, the seals that were you know killed in Fallujah and hung up by the bridge and burned, things like that. I mean that stuff happened quite a bit. And some people. I don't know the statistics off the top of my head. Some people would be amazed to hear how many contractors were killed in a lot of these regions, a lot of these areas, as opposed to how many military were killed. Right. Right. They would really be surprised at that high number, very high number. So, yeah, so we had porcupine vehicles in PSD. You wouldn't see that in diplomatic security, you know, mm. never. Uh, okay. Totally different. So, but you still had to be able to do the job. You still had to be able to carry the weapons, carry the equipment, you still had to be ready to fight if necessary. And the word fight, you say fight. They say, oh, you can't say fight. Well, you know, fight if you're defending yourself, you're fighting. Right. And that's what it is. It's all about the defense, you know. And there's a lot of times when you people would they would uh, get in a, a shoot at them and then run, or they'd shoot at them and you'd, you might even get a chance to, to to take out take the guy out, and then someone else would run up and take his weapon and run off. You know, they would do that <laughs> stuff all. They, they would do that stuff all the time, and then you're like, well, okay, what are we gonna do now? When you shot right. some guy and he don't have a weapon. Well, he did have a weapon and you can see the AK rounds inside of our vehicle. So, yeah, you know,
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that, uh, you know, so this whole. So, yeah. So PSD and what you you talk about uh, uh, stuff that happened like in Fallujah and and the one that. It gets talked a lot about, but there were so many more, like Nassur Square, where everything kind of, where, where the whole, especially out right. there on the street, but everything kind of, that, everything, that was kind of like uh, the stroke of midnight or the death knell, if you would, not the death knell, but it changed. I mean, everything changed after that, but prior to that, PSD, I mean, there were a lot of companies and a lot of people running around out there, and they really, and, and the military was really tied up doing their thing. They really didn't have Time or you know whether it was logistically or or infrastructure they didn't have they they couldn't run to your rescue so so right right yeah. so, so you were out there on your own quite often and, and and you had to be ready for that stuff now since and we've seen some of the changes but from your perspective uh I don't know if you want to go back you know into the beginning and, and you if you want to go all the way through it that's fine but how has how has that From your perspective, your experiences, how has that evolved? How has that changed um, between the way we used to do things from, say, 2003 to 2007, 2008, and how it's evolved and changed since then? Okay. Uh,
1: Well, again, it depends on your company. It depends on your mission, Uh, the clients you're protecting, because sometimes you're protecting other than Americans. And those were the very dangerous missions, obviously, because you have uh, less OPSEC and security. Uh, you've got attacked a lot more. You got hit a lot off more often. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I had, uh, I ran a three vehicle counter assault team for a specific company in Baghdad in 2004. And I had Lebanese, Iraqis, and my, and a couple other Americans in this three vehicle team. Okay. We were playing partially armored suburbans. We had Mag 58 machine guns. Uh, you know, I, I would have my guys wearing goggles. Helmet, uh, knee pads, elbow pads, and everything, because you go down on a knee on a rock. You know when you're covering, you know covering a team, and you, that rock goes in your knee, you're done. You know you're worthless. So we carry, we wear full equipment, full counter assault teams when we not trying to hide nothing, because we would roll up on action that had already started. Either team was under siege inside the Ministry of Oil, or there, you know, something was a problem like that. But so that's a contrast, because then some some guys, some contractors had no counter assault teams at all. Mm. You know, that that was the problem. That's what you're bringing up here. And and, and it did morph. And some people did learn the lessons when some teams were shot up and killed. The contractors that were killed on the, you know, the biop road, they went out and they they had, you know, semi-automatic weapons, which I have no problem with myself, because most of your shooting is always going to be done semi-automatic anyway. But it's 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 the mindset training, the background and the formalization of your teams. You have to have an advance. Usually if you, if you, if it's too dangerous, you run in advance. If it's too dangerous, you don't run in advance, but you have to have a good team and you have to have somebody that can come and do encirclement procedures, flanking and rescue people and get people out of these vehicles. Cause you know, every time you heard about it down vehicles and, and hard sighting in a building and getting off the X, all that stuff. It had, some people had to learn it the hard way. And that's the bad right. thing. So you went from you went from some teams that had nothing. They'd run one or two cars and thinking they were like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, no one's going to mess with me, you know, kind of attitude. They get their <laughs> ass shot off. Oh, excuse me. And then uh, <laughs> then you come back. And then so, well, for, as an example, in 2008, uh, DOS, they're working in some pretty denied areas. OK, I uh, worked for a company then and uh, we had a, a four vehicle team. Uh, the protection team itself, uh, diplomatic with the DOS agent in there, and sometimes not, and sometimes just we ran them by ourselves. The company was able to do it 100% by ourselves. Then we also had a four vehicle advance. Okay. We also had a four vehicle counter assault team, and if needed, presidential air for backup. Mm. So we had, we had cu- big coverage, big, and we still, you know, we still got hit a few times. We still had a few problems here and there. We had vehicles go down. Had to burn a couple of them, but it was, it was great when the team had a vehicle go down. Then here comes these people surrounding them, two to 300 people from a village, from a t- small town. And then here we come rolling up with four more black suburbans with the hatches open on the top. Cause we had the diplomatic security hatches, saws and 240s out and we rolled up and then nothing happened because they were, right. we had, we had firepower. You had right. to have domination and we had the domination. We'd roll up. Boom! The guy's truck's burning. We collect up his bodies, his people. You know, people that they were—they were, they were, they were not bodies. They were to protect up the guys, pick them up, loaded them in, cross-loaded them in other vehicles, and boom! Take off, go back to go back to base. So mm-hmm. that was in the southern part of southern part of Iraq. And so as an example, you can see the contrast. And we've had teams come out there. Well, did they call anybody? Yeah, they called uh, Conop, uh, Contractor Operations, when they started doing that, trying to control. You know, knowing where the contractors were. Uh, and making sure they didn't cross problems with missions with military because the missions of uh, a contractor and military in the same area wasn't always that good, always caused problems, as you well know. So they would make sure that they would call somebody, but then they said, well, where's, where's your counter-assault team? Well, we don't have one. Okay, you can't do that mission. So they did start trying to control people and make sure they had the backup that they needed, but many missions were ran, uh, you know, two- and three-car motorcades with nobody to come help you. And that's mm-hmm. why, and that's why you, that's why you to carry a lot of gear. Yeah. So, so you've seen some, you know, some companies, like I said, we have, we had 16 vehicles. Well, excuse 12. me, 12. Yeah, 12 vehicles. I'm sorry, <laughs> we had 12 vehicles for a mission. But this would be like a four or five, six hour mission, an hour and a half away from base. You know, with no other, no one else to support us. Almost no right. military down there at all. So we had to have this background. We had to have mm-hmm. this protection. And the people out there knew that. So. If you did, gonna, if you are going to get hit, it was going to be by a larger force, and that's why OPSEC was so important. Uh, changing your routes was so important, and being uh, unpredictable—that's what—that's what saved us.
0: Right. Yeah. So, yeah. speak. Speak of un, uh, uh, well, unpredictable, but predictability. Uh, I mean, that. <clears throat> excuse me. Did you? Did you? When you? When? In your experiences, when you were doing this. Was there a time, and if so, how many times, if you can remember, just a general ball, ballpark figure will work too? Did you did you you would embark from wherever you're at point A to point B with a specific plan, route, this, that, one thing, another, and then for whatever reason, you got some you know on the ground intel as you're moving, and you suddenly had to change, and maybe it wasn't part of your plan, and and you did something different. Uh, well. This, Okay.
1: Actually, that's happened a lot. I mean, it happened a lot back before we started contracting in, in the military, uh, and it's been special operations. We would have uh, we would plan a primary, alternate contingency, and an emergency. Well, that stuff all trans transpired or transferred over into contracting. So uh, that's why it was so important to have drivers. A lot of times, local drivers. Okay, Iraqis, Israelis, whatever that knew these areas like the back of their hand. Guys that grew up in them. That sometimes saved our ass quite a bit because we had someone that knew where they could go besides this particular route. But we did have, you know, most of the time I went out, I had a plan. I had a primary. OK, what happens if uh, if uh, assassins gates closed and this you can't go out that gate or what happens if, uh, you know, uh Sudoon streets blocked? OK, what they do is you had another route that was your yellow route. So you had green, yellow, you know, and then you had red and you even we even had another color, which is black, which was, you know, go to hell route, uh, in, <laughs> get, you, get, you, get your butt out of Dodge, you know. But, yeah, so, but yeah, you 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 that happened quite a few times where I've, I've had to turn down a few streets that I was just like, dude, I was like floating on my seat. I mean, I was on edge, you know, scared, you know. I mean, that's the way it is because you don't know what you're turning down. You don't know right. if you're going to get uh, the guys on the top of the building like happened in Mogadishu. Uh, you know, firing down on your car, you know, with 25, 30, 40 AKs, you know, you don't usually get out of stuff like that. You know, not very, not right. unscathed anyway. So yeah, we were worried. That's why we had, like I said, we would either get a driver and a team that was trained. We'd even go out and do orientation. We'd, you know, the team would go out sometimes and actually, you know, theoretically, you're risking your life because you went outside the gate, you know, in Afghanistan right. or wherever. We'd drive around Kabul uh, to learn the routes. That way, when we were with our client, which is who we're supposed to protect, we had that better knowledge and better skills to do that job specifically. Right. So, yeah, yeah.
0: Sorry, about Sorry about that, my radio. Oh no, that's. Um, so what I was gonna say, so for the people that are listening, um, when uh, when you when when you when you go out, or when you did go out. And it wasn't a it wasn't a mission, but you were going out doing say route recon or whatever you were doing uh, that was that wasn't part of of a mission where you have your movement orders and stuff. Um, you're not t- taking a client. Um, for the people listening, what what is different about that in terms of gear, or equipment, vehicles? You know what what what's, what differentiates that. Tempo anything between that and an actual movement. Well,
1: I I don't really think no, we we try to difference. do it the same way. I mean, there's a slight difference, of course, in your how you feel, your, whatever anxieties you might have, you know, about the, protecting the client and that one specific vehicle, you know, the limo. You know, you're not you're not so focused on the limo at that point. You're focused on everybody as a team. You're out there with people that you live with and sometimes die with. Uh, you know bled with so it, you still have that that hyper sensitivity and you know what's going on and we still plan and we don't just go out and say okay well we're not going to go down this road unless at least two or three people on the team have been down that route or been down that road uh, and everything's done uh, over the radio it's done with clarity and usually we plan the routes so there's not a whole lot different okay. now usually since we control our we control our gear we our weapons. Uh, We would still turn on our uh, tracking devices, the whole nine yards. Uh, There's different different types of tracking devices out there, as you well know. And those were registered with the State Department. If we were going out on it, we would tell them, hey, when we're leaving, we're going on doing our route recon, blah, 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 blah. And we'd turn in our routes. I would actually tell them which way we're going to go, where we're going to go, in case they had to come get us or in case they had to support us. So we tried to do it the professional way. And I know some people have gone out on those, uh, you know, back in the old days, guys would go on pizza runs all the way from Sadoon Street into the <laughs> into the green zone to get a pizza. And I wasn't too uh, hot on risking my life for a pizza, but sometimes people <laughs> would do stuff like that, you know. And uh, they said, well, we ain't got a client. We can just go real fast. And, you know, they do stuff like that. But I try to stay away from stuff like that. Maybe that's why I'm still alive and, and I'm still here, you know.
0: Right. Well. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's um, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, maybe if it's risky, do this. And if it's too risky, then just, you know, pass. Um, right. Right. right, I, right. We pass. You, right. Uh, I think that's something, you know, and ex- explain for folks that are listening, if there is a difference between the <clears throat> DOD uh, PSD type mission and a diplomatic Uh, mission in terms of uh, you know does one worry more or less about the risk and and would the defense department say that's too bad we're big green let's do it and whereas the state department says you know we're not going to do it I mean is is there that kind of a black and white thing or does it just depend on the client and I mean or has that changed over the years as well
1: well yeah I think I think you hit all those those spots or, of ambiguity right on the head. There's yeah. times when it depends on the client. Uh, it depends. It depends on the area of operations. It depends on recent uh, inf- information and recent intelligence. There's a difference between those two, and what what the uh, uh, what's going on in your area at, at any one given time. Now between DoD and DOS, uh, yeah, you're gonna find that a lot of the DoD missions have a different in game, a different purpose uh that involves other missions. When a lot of times a diplomatic mission is just to get that one diplomat or a few diplomats to a specific meeting for a specific time. And there would have been times when our if we had a chance to run in advance, when the advance got there, uh we, we figured it was safe enough to run in advance, we'd get the advance. But if the person we were going to meet, for example, I don't know if I can mention names in foreign countries, but I guess it wouldn't matter if they're from another country. But like meet Salam Fayyad in uh which is the uh used to be a security minister in uh uh Ramallah you know or Abu Mazen or even Yasser Arafat for that matter we'd go to their compounds their buildings if you'd get there and the advance team said well the POC is not here well that right away threw up a red flag we would not right. we would uh we would either stall or slow the mission until we had a chance for that person to get there hope, hoping the mission could be you know concluded and done properly Or we would uh, call it off. A lot of times if the POC is not there, you call it off. Same thing with the DOD, uh, you know, guardian angel uh, key leader engagement. You know, if you've got guardian angels, uh, that's the term they use for the guys that were going to be protecting the um, advisors or key leaders that are talking to local uh, village elders, uh, mayors or anybody from the uh, from, I guess you might say, the uh, local national populace. You would go there, and if that person, you're, meant, you're going to meet Mayor, you know, uh, uh, Abiazad, and Abiazad wasn't there, you would kind of say, okay, well, why? You would look around, <laughs> you would check your, you know what I'm saying? you would kind of like, oh and why why isn't he here? You know, and you, you'd find that out. and you, So we, we'd call those missions off, too. So I've had, you know, both missions called off. It just depends mm-hmm. on, like you said, the threat in the area, how far out you are how much you know how much firepower you have you know if you're in an area that's not too far from base and and it's been always been a safe place and intel is good and the guy says oh yeah you know and the guy you got you talk to every day and have chai with comes out and says you know you know shlona kabibi you know what i mean and gives you some chai and talks to you and he said yeah he'll be here in a few minutes well yeah you would uh, you would not call that mission off okay yeah. but you would be you would be on alert you know what i mean right a lot of right. times we'd, we'd, punch out, we'd punch out our teams a little further. Uh, we'd, you know, we'd get guys you know, guys DDMs or, or guys up on the roof if we needed to. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do to uh, enhance your security at any one given time. But you have to be able to feel the, the people. That's why I, I, was, I put so much focus on learning the language and being able to speak to the people. I speak uh, Arabic almost fluently, uh, pretty good in Dari you know, and a few other languages. And that helps me feel good about talking to these people when I'd meet and greet them. When I used to run advanced teams, I'd meet and greet them and tell them, and they used to love me, you know. They used to call me Abu Shwadah because of my big mustache. Everybody, <laughs> everybody, in Palestine, everybody in Palestine, you know, I'd be a guy up on top of the building. I'd get out and I'd be on my back to the door, you know, ready to let the ambassador out or let somebody out, and uh, uh, or the consulate general or something like that, and you would be a guy on the roof. Habibi, hey, You know, Abu Shwadib, You know, they'd be yelling at me and things like that. So when you have stuff going on like that, usually you're pretty comfortable. Okay? Right. So having having a relationship uh, and that's why diplomatic security was a little bit different. You usually have a relationship with the people you go see frequently off over and over again. When DOD missions are a lot more sporadic and they're a lot more uh, changing as the uh, battlefield changes. So you change with the DOD.
0: So. Right. OK. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, and often I, I, you know, sometimes maybe a lot of times folks that haven't experienced this don't understand, because again, they read here, see things second, third hand, and, and they just assume that's just the way it is. Uh, right. But, you know, but you mentioned, uh, you know, so what these folks, some of these folks may have heard these terms, maybe they haven't, but for example, you know, they probably heard like interpreters and translators, LN, TCN, HN, or host nation nationals, whatever. Uh, right. and you talk a little bit about those and the, um, uh, you know, the, the relationships and, and what what we find out, especially if you do this for a length of time, is that relationships with those folks is really important because to them, relationships, that's that's really important to them. And if that's you don't everything. develop that relationship, um, you are really kind of shoot yourself in the foot. And if you have that relationship, that might just be all it takes to keep you alive to the next day. Um, exactly. So, yeah. you know, so, so for these folks that don't know, for example, like you know, you mentioned things like BIAP and DDM and, and, you know, so maybe we can uh, clarify these people just so they understand, you know, what is DDM? What is BIAP? What are we talking about? What is LN or TCN or, or anything like that? Uh,
1: yeah, I understand. Yeah. Well, you know, you have LNs or local nationals, uh, TCNs are third country nationals. Uh, and then you have, uh, you know, the BIAP, which is the uh, Baghdad international airport. And, and that was that was a run that used to be the most dangerous road in the world for a while. Uh, getting to the biop from the green zone. Yeah. And uh, and then, of course, DDMs, You know, uh, dedicated def- well, defensive marksmen. OK, uh, it was a, a term used uh, for people that were I'll, I'll say it the, the correct politically correct terms. You know, they were counter used as counter snipers uh, and they were marksmen that were people that had been specifically trained in a specific military usually uh, sanctioned uh, sniper school. Okay. So they were, they were good with their weapons. They were highly trained, highly professional, and they would overwatch a lot of the teams. I mentioned that before, having guys up on the top of the building sometimes, or, you know, on a water tower, you know, whatever, wherever you need them at. And they would uh, be a good uh, uh, combat multiplier. You might say uh, when you're fighting your your way out of a uh, defensive situation, they, they would come in handy. But, yeah, DDMs. There's a lot of acronyms out there that, that some right. people just don't know or they call them. I right. think they're well. But what I'd like to bring up, if you don't mind, Go ahead. is the term is the term mercenary.
0: Right. Yeah. All <laughs> All right. Right? <laughs> right? Okay. I, I had a lot of guys that I know that were not in the military, not contractors used, you know, call me gun for hire and mercenary. And I knew they right. weren't being nice about it. It's like, dude, what's your problem? <laughs> right.
1: Well. See, people don't realize, you know, you know, a mercenary, if you look in the dictionary you know, if you're well read, it, it, of course, there's there's, uh, there's other uh, ways to explain any type of uh, definition. But mercenary meant that you're working for a country basically other than yours, not your background, not your nationality, usually not even your your uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? I have a loss for words in the English, uh, just not your your Theory, you know, you know, you don't believe in it necessarily. It's like going from from downtown Detroit and then you, you go to work for some uh, dictator in Africa and you fight for him and you're actually offensive. Well, usually a mercenary is an offensive soldier fighting specifically for money other than the cause of his country. Is that right? He's got no allegiance. Yeah, no allegiance. Right, no allegiance. Yeah, you know, no allegiance whatsoever. You're just there to make the money and you're actually offensive though you're a fighter you 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 do anything that your boss says well when you're you're a contractor and 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 i feel sorry for most of these military guys they're they're out there just defensive only you know you have to wait it's like, like like our police officers you know right now they're they have to be defensive all the time and and if you try to do anything you're jumped on as being you know a killer or doing the wrong thing, or or calling you a mercenary, or whatever. But no, but you're defensive. That's what contractors are. They're not mercenaries by no means. It, it's like a paid army. We're not a paid army. Right. We're not army. You know, armies are offensive. Okay, contractors are defensive, and that's what people need to get uh, get clear,
0: in right. my opinion. Yeah, well, yeah, and there and there are a lot of misconceptions and myths and 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 false notions out there because there's a lot of terms thrown around. That, that went on during, uh, from 2003 on, you know, uh, a lot. In fact, I worked for at least one company where some of the managers considered the company to be a paramilitary company. And I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. so, so that's how that stuff gets perpetuated. And then people, you know, extrapolate however they do. Um, you know, so, I mean, and I can understand because especially in the early days of that, of the second Gulf War, when we went in there and, in 2003, from that point on, for for a number of years, it, it kind of was a Wild West mentality. And a lot of things probably went on that in hindsight, maybe they should have, maybe they shouldn't have. But we, it's not the way it is now. I mean, they've, they've Correct. corrected those things. Right. They've adjusted it. And, they, and so. Right. Right. So. I, 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 go ahead. We're, we're you know, we're, like you said, we're highly
1: regulated. Uh, everything's above board. Uh, we have a, a, we don't even use rules of engagement like the military does, like an offensive force does. We use rules of force. Totally different. Rules of engagement, rules of force. Rules of force are the force you're going to use if you're accosted, if you're attacked. It's not rules of engagement where, okay, well, I see him. I have rules of engagement. If I'm a military person, I can shoot him. Boom, automatically. That's the enemy. No, this is rules of force only. That's totally defensive. Uh, We have... Checks and balances. Everybody, you know, everybody's watching you. You got the uh, uh, the cams, which is the contractor uh, arming authorization management systems. Everybody's armed. They have to sign legal documents. They got to have proof that they went to the range. They got to have proof that they can shoot well. They have to have, uh, you know, proof that they're medically fit. Proof that they're not. You know they haven't been a you know a wife beater in the past and all these things you have to go through just to get armed and it's just unbelievable the red tape. So we're highly regulated now. And the word paramilitary was a mistake, but I'll tell you where that came from. That's the first part of my conversation earlier was that when you they had to use paramilitary people because they didn't have time to train them. That wasn't their lifestyle. They were taking people directly out of the military, which is fine, you know, they're great, good great people, but they were still in the military mindset. So they used that to control and to, to get people that they needed for the thousands and thousands and thousands of contractors they needed. Because a lot of times, think about it, you know, a military unit might go over there, stay over there for a year or six months or whatever he's gonna stay. He might only go on a mission every couple of weeks. But most contractors had to work, you know, five, six, seven days a week. Right out there in, in, in the thick of things because they couldn't afford the military the military costs more than a contractor and some people don't realize that because we do pay for a lot of our own stuff for one like you said we pay for our own assurance no one's paying for my family back home no one's paying housing no one's paying food right. no one's paying for my uniforms sometimes now modern companies you know they get really uh, how do I say generalized and they issue a couple of shirts and a couple of pants and you know that's your uniform and and stuff like that. And then some gear, but usually the gear is not worth the crap. So you buy <laughs> your own stuff and make it better anyway. So yeah, so yeah, it, it's a big difference in the, the word paramilitary and a defensive contractor. You know, I, I don't, I never did like that paramilitary term. And right. uh, since 2003, 2004, 2008 specifically, you know, the square the incident in the square, everything changed after that. And there's a lot of oversight now. Uh, and it, it, it made a, made a difference, I think, because there was some people out there that, that, probably should have never been a contractor in the first place, you know? <laughs> right. And yeah. You've seen, you've seen the, you've seen the videos, you know, and yeah. some people, some people they'll take those out of context as well, but you know, you got a car behind you back in the days, if you were on the biop road and there was a car behind you, that's, that's That's a threat. Okay. Right. But how you deal with that threat was the difference between a professional that we're talking about. Someone that came out of special forces, someone that did 10, 12 years in the infantry and, and had some, you know, responsibility, and professionalism, whatever. Uh, that's a difference in a guy that was a two or three year guy in the army that would see the car back there and just automatically start shooting at it. I right. don't, you know, there's a, there was a difference, you know. So, yeah, we, we have come full circle for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and then, but I think, and, and, and give your perspective on it, um, these days, since, let's say, 2008, 2009, since that time anyway, and then these days, it takes even more discipline, more focus, more restraint, uh, more better judgment, more clear thinking, more maturity to to do this kind of work than it it used to uh, because of all those things that have changed. Would you agree with
1: that? Yes, I would, 100%. Things became difficult. Some people don't realize, you know, they think, well, are those people qualified to even do that job? Well, for example, uh, in the early days, You'd go over there, and you were done. You'd be trained, or you get you pull you right out of your unit, pretty much, and you'd deploy, and that was it. You would do your job. Well, nowadays we would go to the range every 90 days and fire all our weapons in a professional qualification course. We would do our PT test every 90 days. We would do. We have to do. We have to do paperwork and other. Uh, legal documents you know every you know sometimes every six months or every every year it's just uh, there's a lot of things stacked on to us now our medical procedures we have to do a medical actual test designed for the theater you're working in at least once a year and people have to stay healthy uh, you know we have a general order number one as you well know we can't drink right. um, a lot of things we just can't do and that's why it makes the lifestyle difficult so if you got a guy that likes drinking, you know, six pack of beer every night, this ain't gonna be the job. This ain't gonna be the job for him, you know.
0: <clears throat> yeah, yeah right. and we we've all we've all seen at least one person that that had that affliction, and yeah, and it was never never a good thing. Uh, right. But you know, you touched on a, a really good point. Uh, well, a lot of them, but the thing about fitness. Uh, And health. So health, fitness, what have you. Uh, I think what a lot of people don't realize, or maybe they do, but I don't think a lot of people that have been over there don't understand. As a private contractor, not dissimilar from, say, the military that's running around out there. I mean, uh, sometimes we can be we can be strapped down with 70 or 80 pounds of gear on our shoulders, wrapped around our torso. And if you're, you know, you're slugging it out, trudging, walking, running, whatever you're doing in the sand, the heat. I mean it doesn't take long if you're not fit and healthy. It doesn't take long for you to go, whoa, I'm done. <laughs> you know Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you you, you just never know when, when when that fitness level, that health level. So so it, it is important. So we're we're not those wild, starry-eyed, you know, crazy party animals. I mean, some of us are, you know, we have our moments, we gotta let off the steam, but I mean we're we're not dissimilar from our military counterparts. So when we were in the military our health and our fitness level and our weapons proficiency and everything. I mean, those are all very integral and important parts of being a contractor. Correct. Right. Right. It has to be a
1: lifestyle. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to perpetuate here is that you don't need, you know, we don't want people that wants to get in for, you know, two or three years and think he's going to make a lot of money and then get out because besides those years are over with, because (laughs) some of some of our uh, politicians in the recent past have decided to, uh, find ways to cut back on our, on our pay, you know, even though we got to pay for half of our stuff and all that kind of crap. But, you know, basically your physical fitness has to be a lifestyle. Well, a lot, you know, people don't realize it, but, uh, I'm over here running a project right now <clears throat> and, um, I'm 60 years old. Uh, I did a 45 pound ruck march, six miles yesterday morning. I did 80 perfect pushups yesterday and I did, uh, 80, you know, hammer curls with 40 pound dumbbells. And today I'll do uh, bent over row with an 85 pound dumbbell, upright row, uh, some squats with my dumbbells. This is in my room due to the COVID 19 thing, by the way. So, sure. but I do my I do my ruck march out back around the uh, old uh, sanitation. that We call it the poop pond, where they used to burn all the poop in the old days. <laughs> I go around and around that booger, you know, with the with 45 pounds on my back. Some people don't realize what what 45 pounds feels like, you know, in a force march. You I mean, simple stuff for military guys. But, uh, that keeps me, my, my entire body, uh, tight, uh, gives me stamina it gets me used to the heat, you know, cause by the time it's, I do it at 8:30, o'clock in the morning when it's already, you know, 85, 90 degrees, hundred degrees outside of here. So yeah, it, it's, uh, something you got to do and it's got to be done all the time. Otherwise you, you catch yourself in a situation where you do get into a running, running gun battle or have to get out of a vehicle and run to a building and you ain't got
0: the poop to do it. You're going to die so right yeah yeah right yeah and 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 it's not just for i mean it it obviously is important for us it should be important for us for ourselves but it's also should be important for us for our teammates the guys we're working with because you know we you know that that's that's something that i don't know how people take that they rely on you yeah Yeah, they rely on on them they rely on us and the client whoever i mean they have certain expectations i mean so so all that stuff that you just spoke about—I mean, it, it is so crucially important—and and probably not that thought not thought that much about people that haven't been there. I'm just yeah. So it, it's that's yeah. But let me ask yeah. you. Uh, turn to something else. So uh, what does, from your perspective and your experiences, um, and you can get specific or generalized if you want as you want. Uh, but for entertainment, you need to blow off some steam. I mean, what does a contractor do while you're? over there or when you get home, how do you, what's your entertainment? What, what do you do for fun? You know, how do you relieve the stress?
1: Yeah, that's the hard thing. A lot of times that's why I use an excuse to do my physical fitness to relieve my stress. You know, that's one thing. That's one thing I can help to push it out with, you know, you say you're humping in the hundred degree heat with, you know, with 45 to 65 pounds in your back and, and that kind of helps you, you know, relieve a little bit of stress. But other things are if you have the capability You know, like we used to have a a salsa night, you know, every Friday night in Baghdad, you know, and that was that was that was fantastic. You're inside the palace. You'd go in there. There's music. There was people. There's a lot of people around then because it was such a such a large place and everybody was centrally located. But you'd have like a salsa night. Uh, What I do is it's good to ring your hard drive and put movies on it. Uh, What they've done here for the for the for uh, in Kandahar is they put a thing called Calf TV, and it's only available here, of course, but they put uh, movies and TV shows on there. So if you're going to want to sit around and watch, you know, the boob tube on your computer or whatever, you can do that. Uh, the, right now during the COVID, there's not much you can do. That's why it was so important for them to put up a, a green beans, you know, on the base, uh, some type of pizza hut like there was in Baghdad. Those things were important to give someone a little similarity to their former life, I have two lives, it, it, that's what the point I think you're trying to make here, you can't have both at the same time, it doesn't work, you have to be able to split in your mind, you have to be stable, emotional, and I split my worlds, you know, I have a world back home, I don't live in, I, I, don't, I live outside the United States, you know, uh, I live in the Philippines, when I'm, when I'm off, the few times that I'm off, I, I go there and my whole, total life changes, well, I like to go out. I like to dance. It sounds kind of funny, but, you know, all the people, say, oh, you're a you're a Green Beret, baby killer, you know, 22 year contractor that, you know, what are you doing dancing? You know, hey, whatever makes you feel good, you know, right. <laughs> so, so I right? like to dance. I, would, I don't mind drinking a couple of Cuba Libres, you know, what I mean, or a couple of shots of tequila, but I'm, I'm the kind of person because of my background, because of everything I've ever done. I've been a bail enforcement agent. I didn't mention that earlier. I was trained by uh, Bob Burton, one of the most famous guys that knew, uh, you know, Pappy Thornton and all the guys from uh, the movie Bullet with Steve McQueen. I was oh. trained by him, had a badge number, badge number 1059. I've uh, done some bail enforcement. I've uh, been a DOD DoD police officer in Kuwait. Uh, you know, I've uh, done a lot of stuff, and I, but it's continual. It's my lifestyle. So right. you have to be able to go back and forth between the lives. And a lot of times, you know, you lose things. You know, you travel, you're. You, some guy leaves, and then all of a sudden, his, his you know his uh, building gets sold or whatever, his apartment or his house, his family moves. I mean, you come back, you're you're in a totally new world. You have to be able to accept that uh, immediately. You know, you've gone to a new world. I do language training. You know, for my, me, me it's, it's it's relaxing and it helps me professionally. You know, because I can speak I can speak uh, Filipino, I speak Spanish, I speak Arabic, I speak some some Dari. I speak a little bit of, uh, you know, Portuguese. I speak a little bit of Kurdish. I mean, it, you know, it goes on and on a little bit of Japanese, a little bit of Chinese. Uh, you can do language training. There's a lot of important things you can do that would help you, uh, improve yourself. Uh, did online schools through American military university, got my degree in security management while I was in Iraq. Uh, you know, finish it up anyway, uh, with all my background and all the schools and some of the classes I had been to, but there's a lot of things you can do, uh, I don't know how to get any more specific than that without being ridiculous, but uh, yeah, there's there. You have to find something you, you like doing. A lot of people they'll go to the MWR, you know, the MWR place, which is closed right now. Have, they'll have a pool, they'll have a pool table there or whatever, uh, you know, some some board games. I mean, all that that basic stuff that everybody knows about that they see in the movies. But that that is supplied usually by the military, and we're, we have access to it. Except right now mm-hmm. it's all closed again because of the COVID stuff.
0: So we've uh, been locked
1: down. So it's a double whammy on us right now. No social interaction. I'm totally uh, alone. I live in my, I really visit some, a project manager. I live in my room by myself right now, which is good. It sucks when you live in a room with two, three, four people or whatever, you know. Uh, but, but we've done that many times. I've lived in tents. Right? You know that. Yeah, I've lived in tents. I've lived in trailers. I've lived in chews. <laughs> I'm actually in a hardened building right now that uh, doesn't have to require you to go to the bunker if there's incoming, which is kind of nice. It's the first time I've ever had that. Huh. But that's because I'm in Air Force type accommodations.
0: Huh. So, yeah. You mentioned Chew, and that's been brought up before. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, people that are listening that, that Chew, what the heck is Chew? And we don't mean tobacco. Right. So uh, can you tell them what Chew is?
1: Yes, it's a containerized housing unit. It's a metal container, the kind you see on the ships. Okay, It could be 20 foot long, could be 40 foot long. Could be whatever size and shape, but usually they're all pretty much regulated. And then they have the uh, they usually cut a door and put a door on it. <clears throat> Excuse me, a window, a bed, a little nightstand, and boom, and maybe a wall locker, and that's your that's your uh, that's your house. That's where you live. Right, it's a metal, hard metal building that they could stack up any height they want. And I've been places where they stacked them three stories high. Yep. You know, with, and they built staircases around them. You know, we know that, Yeah, in Kabul, for example, and, all, and also in Baghdad, you know. Yeah, so yeah. the man camp, you just call it the man camp, you know, though right. they had uh, men and women in there, but, you know, separated, yeah. of course, but they had to, they had the man camp. Right. It, was a man, it meant man camp, meaning it wasn't for cargo, you know, it was for
0: people, people camp. Right. <laughs> right yeah i'm glad you yeah. clarified that because people often yeah. ask for well, man camp and you know and all kinds of crazy notions go through their head <laughs> yeah well, that's correct <laughs> <you know? laughs> <laughs> right so um so miles if we can um uh as we as we start to get near the end here uh can you can you uh is there any thing that you haven't Talked about or articulated that it, that you've experienced as a private security contractor that you would like to tell people about or express or you know just anything that you know whether it's to clarify a myth or just something you want to share with people something well anything.
1: yeah I think I, I covered the, the thing about the mercenary thing you know I want the people yep. back home to understand that you know that. I would say vast majority, especially nowadays, like with all the stuff that you said that's come on board after some of the incidents and all of our, uh, uh, checks and balances we have now. The vast majority of these people are very, very, uh, professional. It's what they do. It's a job. It's a lifestyle. You can't, you can't put them down just because of that. <clears throat> For example, if I come back, it's like coming back from Vietnam, you know, like the guys that came back from, you know, five years in Vietnam. What can I do? What can I do? What do I do? You know, no, everybody looks at you different. Your lifestyle is right. different. Everything. You, you have to be able to transition between those two worlds. So whatever I'm saying is if you got a contractor that comes back, I've been a contractor for a lot of years. You've got to kind of treat him like a veteran, you know, please, you know, help him out. Let him understand that, that, you know, this is the world here. This is what it's like. Uh, same thing with, uh, the mercenary thing. No, don't call him a mercenary. Uh, and I don't do it all for money. I make less money now than I did almost 15, 20 years ago. Believe it or not, I make right. I make you know a lot a lot less money because it's all come down. So it's right. got to be something that you like to do. I was a carpenter before. I forgot to mention that. You know, in kind of wow. in uh, before I got in the military, I was a school trained carpenter in California. I went to the Bay Area 46 Counties Joint Apprenticeship Training Committee for four years. I was a journeyman. I was a good carpenter. Uh, I can always, you know, do that work. Uh, I've been a bail enforcement agent, like I said. I could probably get into law enforcement if I wanted to. And so there's things I can do. But this is what I, this is what I, you know, chose to do because I feel like I'm helping. I'm protecting the military right now, believe it or not. I protect as a guardian angel. I protect military advisors that are teaching these people to be able to do the things that we do. That we think is important for them to protect their country and to protect democracy. That's what we're here for, and that's what people cannot lose sight of, and they can't afford to do the military because someone in the military, usually by the time they have my experience, they're out of the military and gone, or they can't afford it. They can't afford to pay them, believe it or not, because of all the ancillary costs that we spoke about before. You know, housing, back home, medical, full medical for your entire family, food, all your uniform, all your gear, your weapons, your flights and your, you know, and all the people that support them in the backside. See, on my contract, I have to do, I don't know if they're familiar with these terms either, but maybe you can expand upon it. But, you know, I have to do pretty much S1. I got to do S2 pretty much here on the ground. S3, pretty much do S4. I mean, I do all those things. I do all the support things. So you got one soldier. You got many people behind them, backing them right. up. Well, here we don't have that. Contractors don't have that. We got to do, have to know all that stuff. We have to put all that professional background and training to, to use and use it on a daily basis. Before we got on this morning, I'd gotten up and did my entire dashboard for my the size of my contract, my per stat, which is turned in to tell everybody where everybody's at and how many people are on the ground and so on and so forth. And these reports have to be researched before you turn them in. Then do them on the computer. So there's come, you know, I'm involved in computer work, and then I've been involved in tactics. Not so much anymore. This is one of my first jobs I've ever had where I didn't spend all my time outside the wire. Okay. Okay. That's that's one thing that's kind of new for me, and it it was it, it did take some getting used to. I was kind of freaking out because <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't running down the roads, you know, excited, you know, you know, doing my job, thinking about what's going to happen if I'm attacked from this side or I'm attacked from that side you know, remembering your formations, remembering your drills, you know, all that stuff was not, not quite needed as much anymore. You know, being inside the wire.
0: It's always important.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So what I do is there's a section of the base next to us that is considered the red zone because it's the local national area. There are counterparts. Of course, there are friends. Yes. 100%. You know, the Afghan people are our friends for the most part, but this is, that's what guardian angels are for. There's been soldiers, in uniform okay that have attacked you know there was a general killed in kabul a few years back as you well remember uh, those are called guardian angel incidents those are times when the, the force that we're helping the force that we're invited here from force that we're training turns against us for whatever reason something happened to their family or their you know sometimes their families are kidnapped and then they want to they have to they go oh, you got to go kill some americans otherwise we're going to kill your family I and mean, then that's happened before and you know, i feel for them but uh we have to protect against that. We have to protect against the guys that go crazy, uh, you know, Islamist or whatever, have been waiting for that perfect day. And uh, so that's what we do. That's what I do right now. And I train and uh, run these guys to protect all the advisors, you know, mechanics, aircraft mechanics, flight crews, you know, all that stuff.
0: We have to protect them. All, so wow. so that's a, it's a big job. It's a, it's a very big job. And, it's uh,
1: more involved
0: than people think it is. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, Miles, um, I mean, uh, you're you're probably one of a number of guys. um, I mean, it kind of goes both ways and I'm not sure what the percentage is, you know, guys. But you're you're one of I'm sure there's a lot of guys out there still doing it. But you're one of the few guys that I know personally that has led this professional career level stuff, not only through the military, but in contracting and still doing it. And, and you touched upon you know helping you know for the civilian population and for those that aren't part of that community to understand that you know what we sacrifice what we give and, and the stresses that we're under and and the trouble we sometimes have assimilating or getting back into civilized society you know, but you're still doing it and you're still doing your part and 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 uh, hopefully um, you know, people out there will understand what guys like you are still doing. Um, that, that, that important job out there, um, it, it's, it's not that, that glamour thing that they see in the Hollywood movies. Um, oh, no. And so, uh, you know, man, my hat's off to you. And, uh, you know, if there's anything else you'd like to say before we wrap this up, uh, let it out. Well, there's not much. I just know
1: this is, hey. like I said, it's been my lifestyle. Um, I was 16 years. Uh, the military and I've been a contractor now for, for 22 years. That's a lot of years. Uh, One thing that's good for me though, is that, like I said before, you know, my, my physical fitness is far superior to to most, which is fantastic for me because it helps me. I have the blood pressure of a 25 year old, you know, uh, I had a full, full, full physical done recently and the doctor goes, well, you're, you're, I can't believe it. Your liver's like 98%. You know, and you have a cult, you have a colon of a 25 year old. And I says, well, well, I study. you know, I study Chinese medicine. I study Chinese martial arts. Just a couple of things I forgot to mention about my, uh, my, uh, morale support there that I do for myself. You know, I, uh, I study, I, I learn, uh, I don't sit here idly and do nothing. If I do have, if I do have spare time, which is not very often. And, uh, this is Friday, which is called Juma and which is the holy day for uh, Islamists. So that's why I have the time to do what I'm doing today. And I got really good, uh, well-trained people under me that are running the operations right now. So, yeah, uh, relying on your other buddies and other people, uh, relying on Americans. You know, I do want to say something about the things that are, you know, we have to we have to support our institutions as a whole. And I mean, obviously, because of what's going on, you know, policemen, law enforcement, a lot of guys out there like the same with us and contractors. We have contractors that probably shouldn't be here. They're short term and they disappear. Okay, they go away by people that stay and do the job usually they're they that's their lifestyle they want to do good uh, they're here for good intentions and that's what I want people to, to remember don't automatically stereotype everybody and, right. and to help each other out you know basic stuff like that and uh, you know you'd be surprised a lot of people uh, don't have nothing to do over here they, they think that we're all godless you know murderers and child killers and all that kind of stuff which is not true. You know, I, I, I pray every day, uh, consider I'm a Baptist, you know, I consider myself, you know, religious. I'm not what you would call stereotypically, again, a Bible thumper. No, but I do follow the uh, the rules. I do follow the morals, the commandments. And that's what's also kept me alive, I think. I've always had someone watching out over me. I've been blown yeah. up. I've been shot. I've been stabbed. Uh, and I and people uh, actually used to make the joke around me in, in Baghdad. Hey, man, we need to go, go get get Miles's truck. You know, when they are joking around, we have seats we have signed anyway. Let's get Miles's truck, man. You'll be all right. Don't worry about it. You know, <laughs> nothing ever happens to him, you know, but uh, it would happen all around me, but not not
0: to me, you know, <laughs> which is okay. fantastic. You know, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, that's that's, pretty, that's, much, that's pretty much it. OK. You know? yeah, and that's a, that's another aspect, along with a lot of other stuff that maybe we can cover down uh, another time uh, on this, on the show. Uh, But with that said, Miles, I want to say, Hey man, dude, I really appreciate what what you've done, what you're doing over there for everybody. And I, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy day over there to talk with us on this show.
1: It was been, it's been my pleasure. And I want to thank everybody in, in America for, uh, you know, please keep America America. That's why we do what we do. We're trying to keep the world
0: safe for everybody. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to wrap this up. And uh, Miles, hang on for a moment. Uh, uh, We'll pick up after this. Uh, Thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, Another episode of uh, OCONUS, The Contractor's Life. In the meantime, keep it real.